Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 15th. Derek Van Riper, Al Melchior here, closing out our series, Depth Chart Diving. We wrap it up with the NL East edition, where we go through team by team, look for playing time, battles of interest, and other things that have caught our eye over the course of this extended draft season, which only is going to be extended by about a week. Good news since the last time Al and I spoke, and as we were signing off on Under the Radar last week, since we recorded a day early, it was literally minutes before an agreement for the new CBA was reached. So a lot has happened since we last dropped an episode, but we're definitely looking forward to a return to what is more like our normal schedule around here. Al, let's begin with the defending World Series champions in Atlanta. Big newsmakers on Monday with the acquisition of Matt Olson from the A's. It's a big park factors bump. Uh, the park in Atlanta, of course, plays better for left-handed power and for just runs in general. That doesn't even get into the possible upgrade to the lineup around him, which I think at full strength is a pretty clear upgrade. So as you look at Olsen in this new environment, are you moving up your boards? And if so, how much? I'm really not going to move Olsen at, at all because I've been, I think, more more pessimistic maybe it's probably an overstatement but you know more down on him maybe than the community has been I mean I, I agree in terms of where he's being drafted you know well well behind uh, Vlad Jr. and Freddie Freeman but I don't really see a need to bump him up closer to those two because I think there's there's a little bit of a wash that's going to happen here whereas last season Olsen dramatically reduced his strikeout rate and maybe you know maybe that's a a skill that that is now fully his, but as we've talked about in the past with a lot of other players who make drastic improvements like that, there is a, a strong history of, of regression for players in that category. So I'm not really buying the the full extent of the strikeout rate improvement, which obviously is going to, if he does regress, that's going to cut down on his opportunities to hit pull uh, hit hit uh, home runs, and also his fly ball pull rate was one of the highest of his career. Uh, or I should say rather one of the lowest. And the last time that uh, Olsen had a, a fly ball pull rate that was roughly in the vicinity of where it was last year, it was a, was a down season for him power-wise. So despite the fact that you know he was hitting in Oakland, uh, you know, thanks to those, uh, you know, thanks to the, the, the K rate being down, he did fall just short of 40 home runs at 39. So I, I think that all these things are going to kind of just... Uh, neutralize each other DVR. And I think we'll see another roughly 40 home run season for Matt Olson, which is awesome, but maybe with a lower, a lower batting average and uh, yeah, certainly in a good position to, to produce runs in Atlanta, but I think it all just sort of washes out. Yeah. So I wonder if what we end up seeing is projections that are more likely to be met. And I have to look back to see what the projections were before 
the trade and if they've actually already been adjusted, I assume since it's Tuesday morning, they have been. The power is supported by all the projection systems, so there's no real concern there. Maybe it's easier to stay at or near the 40 home run level because of those park changes, but I think you're right. The strikeout rate is going to go a long way toward determining whether or not we see another season quite as good as 2021 from Olsen in his new environment. That was a big change. Let's throw out 2020 and just look at the K rate in 2019 compared to 2021. Olsen went down from 25.2% in his last full season to 16.8% last year. That is a massive leap. Hopefully he sustains it. I think the projections are right to sort of land near the middle. The bat X is the most optimistic at 19.5% for the projection in 2022. Most of their systems at 21% or less. So not a, a jump all the way back to where he was, but also not sustained improvement quite at the level uh, where he was at in 2021 either. A good trade for Atlanta in the sense that they replaced Freddie Freeman without making a long-term commitment to a franchise icon, if that was the goal. <laughs> so <laughs> whether or not that ends up being a good decision in the long run, I guess we'll know in you know a few years. We'll see how Olsen performs during his time in Atlanta. We'll see what Freeman goes on to do elsewhere to see if they were ultimately right, that they had reason to be concerned about Freddie Freeman's eventual decline. Other things going on in Atlanta. At this time, I think Will Smith is the reliever with the highest ADP that I really don't trust to keep his job all season. But choosing his replacement is reasonably difficult. We saw the strength of this bullpen on full display throughout the postseason last year. Clearly, with the number of lefties they have and the fact that they're using a lefty as their closer right now, being left-handed does not prevent one from becoming the closer on this team. So you could look at Tyler Matzik and A.J. Minter and, and see a path for them. You could look at Luke Jackson and see a path for him to possibly be the guy. Are you as concerned about Smith as I am? And if so, who do you like most as a possible replacement at some point this season? I am as concerned about Will Smith as you were. So when you put this in the rundown, I was glad that we had an opportunity to talk about it because between the 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 walks uh, being something of a, a risk for him and him not being uh very averse to the home run. That's that's not necessarily a great com, uh, combination for job security. And like you said, there are plenty of candidates that could step in and not only take the job uh, on a temporary basis, but be good enough to just, just keep the job and run with it. So of the candidates that you mentioned, I like Tyler Matzik the best. And the fact that, as you, you pointed out, there are enough lefties there to fill a variety of roles that that's not something that would work against Matzik. So from a, a skills perspective, uh, I like him the best and the, the fact that he did pitch in a lot of high leverage situations in 2021. He would seem to me to be a natural successor, but Minter, one of the other lefties, uh, he's closed before, not really with a, a great deal of consistency, but he had a very good year last year and he could be very effective as a closer too. So if I had to settle on one, I think it would be Matzik, but I think either Matzik or Minter, I could see them succeeding Smith and, and being successful in doing so. And so far, I haven't felt like it was necessary to, in a shallow mixed league, draft Matzik, because I do think Will Smith, as someone who's done the job for a few years, who has reasonably stable skills, despite the control concerns and the home run issues, strikeout rates consistent, the velocity is consistent. I don't think it's a quick turnover of the job. I just think it's one that seems 
likely to turn over at some point. So I have not been stashing Matzik outside of really deep leagues, like NL-only leagues. I'm interested there right now as a reserve, maybe even as like a $1 endgame player. Uh, and then if you look at like a draft and hold league where you can't make in-season moves, you want to take a very late flyer on someone that could end up with saves later. I think those circumstances are where I've been most interested in Matzik. So he's a little more of a, a watch list guy for me than a, a stash in mixed league sort of guy for the time being. The other question I had for you about this team is, is the rotation slightly underrated nearly across the board? Maybe Max Freed is an exception because I know there's some people that are in his camp and, and kind of pushing him up. Uh, in the I think he's in the pick 75 range right now, if I remember correctly. You look at Freed, you look at Charlie Morton, who seems to get discounted just because of age. Eden Anderson, who missed a lot of time with injury last year, but still might have one more level. And Waskari Noah, who came out of relative nowhere to pitch very well last season. Had he not broken his hand punching a wall, we would have seen a lot more of him and would have a better read on where he's truly at skills-wise. But I just... Every time these guys come up in a draft room, I feel compelled to take them because I feel like I'm getting pretty good value. I agree. Uh, I, I also agree with what you said about Max Freed that I, I think he's a bit of an exception to the rule here. And one that surprises me, DVR, because he's got the sort of profile that I would think that would make a, a lot of managers sort of hesitant to, to reach for him where he's going. Uh, I mean, I'm looking right now at NFBC ADPs for the month of March so far, and Freed's overall ADP is 73. So uh, I'm I'm a little surprised by that, but I think I, I wouldn't want to reach any further for Freed, but I think that the combination of skills that he has with uh, being able to get ground balls and get them, by the way, get really low grounders, and that's something that I, I want to talk about a little bit with this rotation, that uh, he could he could be very successful from a, a fancy perspective without being an, uh, an excellent strikeout pitcher. Charlie Morton, I think he's just in that category of players, sort of like Nelson Cruz, where people just wait every single year for the wheels to come off and they never, ever do. So I'm in on Charlie Morton. Ian Anderson, I think maybe a lot of us, and I, I'm going to include myself in this. I haven't drafted Ian Anderson yet. And I think that he had a very nice rookie season that, could easily be improved upon. Still still very young. And you look at the, the minor league track record, and I think there is more strikeout potential there for Ian Anderson that's not being reflected in, in where he's drafted. And one thing about Anderson that I really do like is that of pitchers last season that induced at least 150 grounders, he was far and away the one who had the lowest average launch angle allowed. And that correlates really strongly with low Babbitt rates. So makes sense. So he was first in that category. Morton was sixth. Freed was ninth. So the the so Atlanta had three of the top ten pitchers in that regard of inducing low weak grounders that turned into easy outs. And all three did have lower than average BABIPs that I think can be sustained. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because Anderson's got 160 and two thirds big leagues innings now over over two seasons. A 259 BABIP. All the projection systems are about 40-ish points above that. And that, of course, pushes those ratios above where they've been so far. Uh, so it, it does seem to, to check out that he has an underlying skill that enables him to support that, that lower BABIP. Some players have that, right? They induce weak contact. They induce a lot of ground balls. Like There's, there's something in the profile that actually justifies something that's better than a league average in that regard, which is why BABIP is more fun now than it was like 10 or 15 years ago when 
we thought everybody's BABIP might be about the same. Like, you know, that's it's good to learn things. It's good to yeah. understand more about the the world around us. Uh, Waskiri Noah, I mentioned him before. I mean, he's not expensive. I think he's pretty consistently outside the top 200 overall if you're looking at March NFBC ADPs. I think the main complaint about him is that he's mostly a two-pitch guy, right? It's fastball slider, but it's pretty big velocity. I wonder, like, he's young enough, like, maybe there is a third pitch that he can turn to more often. It was a changeup that he threw 6.6% of the time last year, so there is a third pitch that he's thrown in games. We just like to see that number in double digits to really count it as something that he can he can trust in enough situations. Uh, what do you make of Enoa as the least pricey Atlanta starter that we're talking about here right now? Yeah, well, when you're talking about starters that you could consistently reliably get outside the top 200 and right now that March NFBC ADP is 246 so he truly is a, an end game uh, an end game option so there's really no risk I mean those are pitchers that you typically churn <laughs> on your roster and possibly you get somebody third pitch or not you get somebody who like last year can get you more than a strikeout per inning, in his case, really well over a strikeout per inning and pitch for a team that ought to give him ample run support. What's what's not to like? Yeah, ticks all of the boxes what we're looking for. I look at this depth chart. I don't think there's anyone who's going to push him for that job in the short term. I think you have to pitch pretty poorly to actually be in a position for someone else to take over that spot. Let's go to the Phillies. And I want to start with Alec Bohm because I want to know, do you think he's going to win back the third base job? And do you think he's going to keep it all season after a disappointing 2021 campaign? I would expect him to win it back. I think that there, there really be little reason, especially considering the, the options on the roster, there'd be little reason to not give him the opportunity to try to meet the, the expectations that he set. It is, you know, his first call up in 2020 and to, to try to, match the, the the potential that he showed in his minor league numbers. The thing is, I, we've seen this pattern before with the Phillies. I'm thinking primarily of Scott Kingery here, but players who really blow up when they go to AA Reading, which has that notoriously hitter-friendly park, and put up less impressive numbers at AAA and then really struggle when they when they get promoted to the major leagues. And so, for fairly or unfairly, I'm, I'm putting Bohm in that, that bucket. So... I don't know what the thought is in the Phillies organization, but I could see a scenario where he gets an opportunity to win this job back, and then it goes to probably Johan Camargo at least uh, in, in the short term. I think Camargo is somebody who could you know could keep that seat warm and perform well enough. So I, I've really not been that interested in targeting Bohm. I am a skeptic, but I, I do think that he will likely get a shot. To, uh, to do a lot better than he did last year. Yeah, I hope for their sake that they can get more from him and not have to go the Camargo route. I think Camargo is just a guy, nice bench player, but not somebody you want to put in your lineup on a day-to-day basis. And you know, the projections are pretty light on Bohm. You look at a 260s, 320, low 400 slug in that ballpark especially, it doesn't bring you a lot of value, not enough to really make an impact in at least 12-team mixed leagues, kind of borderline even in 15-teamers if those projections come up for Bohm. The Zach Wheeler news that came out, I believe that was on Monday that we found out, maybe it was late Sunday, but the news that he was dealing with some shoulder soreness back when he started ramping up in December and there's a possible limitation for him at the beginning of the season, 
that's pretty concerning when you're talking about a guy that has a bit of an extensive injury history. He had Tommy John surgery a few years back. Clearly a big spike in workload from the shortened season in 2020 to 2021 when he got to a career high 213 and the third innings. Uh, what are you doing at this point knowing the little bit that we know about what happened to Wheeler over the course of this offseason? Yeah, dude, this is a this is a tough one because the Phillies came out with this statement that uh, this delay for Wheeler is not injury related. I want to believe that. And yet we've seen instances, uh, not necessarily with this organization, but with others where uh, we find out something different in the longer run. But when you look at what your your options are, if you're foregoing Wheeler uh, where he's currently going, uh, you get very quickly into territory where you're, you're taking some other kind of risk. Are, are you going to take Shane Bieber? You're looking at your queue and it's, you've got Wheeler and you've got Bieber. Are you taking Shane Bieber? Uh you know, are you you going to go ahead and take Aaron Nola in, instead, or, or Lucas Giolito? I don't think I'm quite there yet, and maybe I'll maybe I'll wind up regretting it. Uh, I think it's to me it's very close between Wheeler and Nola because I think Nola is getting a little, little bit punished in ADP for some unimpressive surface numbers last year when the the skill indicators were really really good. So maybe I'd. I'd go ahead and, and pull the trigger on, on Nola, but I think that's about as far as I go. I, I you know, I'm gonna maybe unwisely trust the uh, the reporting uh, right now on on Wheeler and just hope that he just misses a couple of starts and, and health wise that he's going to be okay. And this really is just workload management. Yeah, I think this pushes him closer to Bieber, even if it doesn't drop him behind DeGrom and Bieber in ADP. I think it just makes me less willing to take Wheeler in the early part of round two with the one-two turn or even the middle part of round two. I'll probably just pivot and take a bat instead based on what we know right now. A week from now, if he's throwing and he's back on schedule, things can change again. But this is the the, the fog of spring training where you're, you're stuck and in, in getting limited information basically from a span of three and a half months, all condensed down into a few days and trying to figure out uh, how actionable it really is. I'd rather be a little safe with pitching, especially when we're talking about a shoulder in the first couple of rounds. Part of the reason why I don't have DeGrom anywhere yet, too. I know uh, he came out and said he's planning on opting out at the end of the season, which in some roundabout way might be a vote of confidence in his own health and and just his way of saying, I'm going to come out and deal and then I'm going to go get paid. Maybe that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be awesome. I still want to see it with guys like this a little bit this spring. It's it's more of just seeing the typical velocity, seeing the workload start to track up, and I realize that puts me in a position to miss out on the discount because if Wheeler or DeGrom or Bieber or any combination of those guys are pitching well this spring, they're not going to go where they're going right now. But I'd rather see what I need to see before taking them at a higher price than take them where they're going right now because I just don't feel like there's enough of a discount to reflect that added risk that appears to be in play for him. The natural question here, though, if Wheeler were to miss time, is you know who takes advantage of that, who actually steps up. They did get some good news on Zach Eflin. He had a knee injury last year. He could be ready for opening day. But what is your interest level in Hans Kraus and, and Bailey Falter as potential next starters up in this Philly rotation? Well, there's nothing in Kraus's profile that makes me want to take that that late round uh, dart toss on him. Uh, it, it, you know, it's just maybe there's going to be some innings there. And if the, the news on Wheeler winds up being worse than what we're seeing right now, then maybe there's an opportunity. But I'm just not sure 
what to project into that opportunity. That really makes me interested in Kraus other than in, in mono leagues. So Falter, on the other hand, is a different story. I mean, if it, it looks like we find out fairly soon. And again, we've got a very compacted spring training here. So maybe we get news a little quicker than we're used to. But if we find out that Falter gets a, an opportunity, then that's that's a profile that I find a little bit more intriguing. So uh, I think we're still talking about deeper leagues here. And you have to keep in mind that whoever does get a, a boost early on with a spot in the rotation, that doesn't necessarily last more than a couple of weeks. So I'm still talking pretty deep leagues. Yeah, I, I think they're 15-team mixed leagues and deeper. When we're talking about a guy like Bailey Falter and even Zach Eflin, I think in a 12-teamer, maybe they'd be streamers in the right matchup. But it's hard to stream back-end starters in Philadelphia, given how hitter-friendly Citizens Bank Ballpark has been throughout, really, its entire existence. A bullpen update from this team. Phillies fans love talking about their bullpen. Is Corey Knable safely the closer still with the addition of Brad Hand and Juris Familia in recent days? I mean, I, I think it's easy to look at Knable's skills and say he should be the guy, but skills don't always dictate role. So I'm just curious where you're at with those additions. Yeah, and if we just look at it from the skills perspective, I think that there's reason to not be all, all that far in on, on Corey Knable because I was actually, I'll admit, uh, I was sort of surprised to VR to look at Jerry's Familia and, and how he did last year. He wasn't really that, that much on my radar, but skills-wise, there really isn't that much that separates him from Corey Knable. And I think maybe a little bit less of an injury risk too. So I wouldn't be surprised if either for health reasons or performance reasons, if you do see Jay Reese Familia get a, a fair number of save opportunities in 2022. Brad Hand, he's definitely off my radar at this point. Uh, we haven't really seen the best version of him in a few years. And last year was definitely a, a, a tick or two down for him. The slider just wasn't very effective, wasn't getting very many whiffs last year. Maybe that's something that Brad Hand can correct, but I'm not banking on it, and I don't really see the format or situation where I would be targeting Brad Hand even late. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a things have gone poorly in our bullpen again. You've done the job before, and we're going to try you as our third option. I think that's the situation with Brad Hand right now, based on what we've seen in recent years. But I don't know. I feel like I also don't have a lot of confidence in being able to predict the whims of the Phillies at this point either. Let's head over to the Mets. Injuries have made this situation a little bit more complicated over the years. But how much playing time are you expecting and how much power are you expecting from Brandon Nimmo this season? Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting question because power is not really the first thing I think of when it comes to Brandon Nimmo. I think about him as being somebody who can set the table, uh, possibly help with, with batting average. Great for OBP leagues, uh, can score some runs. But uh, it, it's, it's interesting to me to look at the, the projections for, for Nimmo because if you look back, uh, obviously 2020, the short season, and in that short season, got to the plate 225 times, which is actually pretty impressive. But um, bookending that, last year, 386 plate appearances, lots of different injuries for Nimmo. And then two years before that, 2019, just 254 plate appearances. So there's really only been the 2018 season where we've seen something of a, a full year of playing from him. And he did hit 17 home runs that year. I think that that 
that level of power is is still there, but I don't really think he's going to get the playing time. Uh, just if you look at the injury history, I, I'm just not buying uh, anywhere close to 535 plate appearances. And yet when you look at the projections, everybody's got him well over 500 plate appearances. So, and, and yet power-wise is measured by ISO. I think that they're underestimating Nimmo. So I don't think he's going to get to mid-teens, but I could see him getting, you know, maybe 400, 450, 450 plate appearances and, uh, you know, coming coming close to that. So that, that's my thinking on, on Nimmo, that uh, decent power for how much he'll play, but I don't know that he'll play that much. Yeah, I think it might just be the 15 homers, eight steals profile that's projected, but I keep wondering if there's something more because we see these little flashes on occasion where he starts to barrel the ball a little bit more. Unfortunately, 2021 was actually the lowest full season barrel rate we've seen from him. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to count what happened in 2016 because he was barely a big league player that year. He only played 32 games, was under 100 plate appearances, but a 3.3 or 3.6% barrel rate is not encouraging if you're looking for a power breakout. Where I think he's really good, though, is being an OBP machine and getting a chance to lead off in a much improved and much deeper Mets lineup. The counting stats might be outstanding. And I think because he can play some center field, if Starling Marte gets hurt, they've got another guy that can quickly slide over there. He's safe in a corner. So the playing time is really stable on a team where there's a lot of mixing and matching going on. But I do wonder... If they're going to be more like the Rays, like we talk about the Rays a lot. Now the Rays mix and match and the regulars in that lineup don't play enough. Usually you get three to four guys that aren't necessarily pulled into that. For the Mets, who are those players? I mean, I think Pete Alonso, Francisco Lindor, and probably Starling Marte, as long as he's healthy, are the first three. If there's a fourth player, is it actually Nimmo that ends up racking up the, the next biggest share of the playing time? I think it could be Nimmo. I actually was thinking of a couple of other players, maybe even ahead of Nimmo, because there has been something of a precedent for for platooning him. But you go um, looking uh, probably much further down the order, Mark Canna, uh, slated to to be their regular left fielder, Eduardo Escobar at third base. And yeah, you could have J.D. Davis uh, playing in there, you know, Jeff McNeil. There there are some different options. But with... um, with uh, Escobar being a, a switch hitter, you know I'm not sure that the that that there's a, an option there really to platoon with him. So yeah, I I think that maybe Canna and Escobar and Nimmo could actually see some pretty pretty regular playing time. Yeah, it's an interesting puzzle that they've put together with the, the talent they've amassed. I thought if they made a trade for a player like Chris Bassett, it would cost them someone from the big league roster, and it didn't. So. Kudos to them. I mean, they might not be done, so I guess that could also move some of these guys that don't look like they have enough playing time into situations where they could be everyday players again. Looking at this rotation and, and just focusing on Jacob deGrom for a moment, I outlined some of my concerns just a moment ago when we were talking about the Zach Wheeler situation, but under what circumstances are you in on Jacob deGrom? What do you need to see? What would make you feel like you can draft him at what could be a very rapidly increasing draft day price if the spring goes as expected. Well, it, it, as things stand currently, and like you said, this could change very rapidly. 
But as it stands currently, I'm probably not going to wind up with Jacob deGrom anywhere because uh, currently so far this month, he's the sixth starter on average that's being drafted. And I'm not really comfortable with deGrom as my SP1 just because of the risk that he might not make that many starts. And it's I can't recall as tough a dilemma as there is with deGrom with, with any pitcher in recent memory because passing on deGrom means passing, you know, possibly on the the best pitcher on the board, somebody who could finish the year as the the best fantasy starting pitcher and maybe by a big margin. But you could also wind up with somebody that maybe only makes 15, you know, 15 to 18 starts. That's enough risk for me at, at the SP1 position. I want a little bit more safety and stability there. It's such a difficult calculation to make because when you run something like the fact the, the Fangraphs auction calculator you see that DeGrom throw in the ATC projections and, and run it on 15 teams. You want to see the exact numbers I'm looking at. But you see DeGrom sitting there with a projected value of $34 in that format. He's second only to Garrett Cole. And that's with 50 fewer innings. Cole's at 37.2, so a $3 and change difference between the two. But even with 30 or more uh, fewer innings projected than Corbin Burns and Max Scherzer and Shane Bieber and Brandon Woodruff and Zach Wheeler and Walker Bueller. Jacob DeGrom still projects ahead of them. And I think it's it's fair to hedge in the middle and expect something in that 20 to 25 start range as this is sort of the, the true workload. But if he is, in fact, totally healthy and he gets to 190 or 200 innings, I mean, he could be the best pitcher in the pool by $5 at season's end. That's that's well within his range. So, I mean, I understand why people are tempted to do it. And I think for me, what I need to see is a handful of spring outings where he's just lighting up the velo gun like normal. Like if that's if that's where he's at, if it's high 90s on the, on the velocity, like from the jump, as soon as he's out there in Grapefruit League games, I'm comfortable with the idea of him being as healthy as he claims to be right now, knowing the risk, I think that changes the way you build a team. Ordinarily, you draft a pitcher that early. You have the option of not necessarily backing him up and going the pocket aces route. I almost feel like if you go with DeGrom, you have to get another ace. That's the ideal strategy is to say, I'm going real heavy with pitching. I'm going to make sure that even if I do have DeGrom for only 100 or 120 or 140 innings, that I'm still going to dominate ratios and Ks because I have allocated a lot of other early resources to make sure that I'm just loaded in that category. Yeah. And that's a strategy that I just don't see that I'm going to be taking in any of my upcoming drafts. It's such a huge price to pay if it doesn't work out because you've got scarcity at first base, you've got scarcity at third base. You've got the temptation of going after one of the top two closers really early. Uh, I did the, uh, the nerf draft this past weekend. I took Salvador Perez, uh, probably the earliest I've ever taken a catcher in the third round. So there's, there's so many different ways you could use one of your top five picks or so and to take a big risk certainly with one of your top two picks that's hard to come back from if it doesn't work out yeah uh, it's it's risky for sure but it could have a, an amazing payoff if it works so uh, salt to taste on that one if, if you're just not a, a very risk tolerant person you can probably win a league without Jacob deGrom but there's certainly a chance that you could uh surprise uh, at his current price if you if you think everything's good right now i just need to see it first before i can actually take on that kind of commitment 
Let's go to the Nationals, where I did not see a Nelson Cruz signing coming whatsoever. I thought they were in kind of a a mini rebuild. I don't know if you're, if they were tearing it down completely, but this does improve their lineup a lot. It you know hurts a couple guys on the fringes, probably most specifically Yadiel Hernandez. Sorry, Nando, but <laughs> Nelson Cruz being there puts him in a pretty bad spot where he now has to go compete for playing time in left field. What do you make of Nelson Cruz at this point? You mentioned him a little bit earlier. We were talking about Charlie Morton. I mean, this is a pretty good place to hit. It's been so hot and humid in D.C. midseason. The ball really flies out of that ballpark. And you can at least talk yourself into the top part of this lineup being good enough to help support some counting stats for for guys like Soto and and like Cruz and, and Josh Bell. But it just tails off pretty quickly at the bottom half of the order. So it could be a case where he lags a little bit compared to where he's been in previous lineups. Well, I know we're going to get to the outfield uh, in, in short order here, but I, you know, I agree with that assessment. The top five is really solid. Uh, maybe, maybe that could be extended a little bit. It really depends on how, how Kaber uh, Ruiz develops this season. Maybe there's a Victor Robles uh, bounce back. I know we're going to talk about that. Uh, so there, there's some potential maybe for this to be a pretty decent lineup, but as far as Cruz is concerned, like you say, maybe that's not even a big concern for him because he can certainly drive in a lot of runs with the batters that are projected to go ahead of him. If Josh Bell's heading behind him, maybe uh, some opportunity to, to score some runs. And the, the skills for Cruz, still really, really solid. So I'm I, one of these years, I know it's it's not going to uh, work out for him, but I, I just don't see the reason to think that it's going to be this year any more than we should have thought it was last year or the year before that. Yeah, I mean, still a really steady power skill set, plenty of barrels, plenty of damage he can do. And I think the price was down for most of draft season. Now that he has a team, maybe that ticks up a little bit. Because I think with Cruz, there was always a concern that while he seemingly wanted to play, maybe teams finally would just say, yeah, no, we're, we're not in. And he'd quietly have to retire because there wasn't enough interest. Obviously not the case, though, with him landing in a weird situation in D.C., the outfield is pretty interesting because Lane Thomas has underlying numbers that could get you a little bit excited about what he might do. I've seen him projected as their leadoff hitter, too. So if that happens, then the counting stats might be pretty good. They got Andrew Stevenson still there, Yadiel Hernandez, who I already mentioned, and then they're looking at Victor Robles again, maybe hoping for a bounce back. Some combination of those guys will be in the outfield along with Juan Soto. After Soto, who is the most valuable outfielder for the Nats this season? See, I feel like this was this was an excuse to talk about Victor Robles, so correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong about that. Uh, but I, I was fully prepared to say it's not Victor Robles, that it's going to be Lane Thomas. I don't really see that Yadiel Hernandez is going to do anything that's, and I'm sorry, Nando, but yeah, do anything that's really going to elevate him beyond being a fourth outfielder. And Thomas does have an extre- uh, an intriguing skill set. Uh, there is some, some power speed potential there. I think that the batting average ceiling is pretty low, which does make this a really interesting thing to consider that could Victor Robles maybe be more valuable than Lane Thomas. I don't see it DVR except for one possibility, which is that I look at Robles's profile and I see a guy who hits a, a lot of line drives, doesn't really put the ball on the ground much. So it's a lot of line drives, uh, a fair amount of, of fly balls, 
pulls the ball pretty distinctly. uh, And that just doesn't seem to be a great fit for somebody who has so little raw power. But that is the exact same description I used to use to talk about Jorge Polanco. And somehow Polanco found the power last year. So Robles is young enough. Maybe we see a, a similar a similar trajectory. And I mean, this is probably stretching it a bit, but I, I don't think you're going to mind it that he did spend a little time in AAA last year and, and Robles put up a, a 265 ISO there. So it's a small sample, but he's young enough that I can believe that maybe it, maybe it meant something. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely rule it out. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at a player in his early 20s, see underwhelming stat cast numbers, lots of blue ink, which has been the case for Robles, and just kind of throw up your hands and say, this guy doesn't have any power. Age to level, though, needs to be accounted for. I, I think he's the guy they want to have in center field. Dave Martinez has come out and said that much this spring. And that lack of competition, at least as of right now, maybe they add another veteran to the mix and the playing time situation gets more crowded. As things stand right now, I still see a guy that could come in, provide some cheap steals, and possibly add a little power. I, I don't I, I don't think you're you're out of bounds here with this claim. Now, I've been a Robles believer since the beginning, so you know, me supporting your claim probably carries less weight than a, a rational person, but <laughs> All that is to say, I mean, we did see Robles draw more walks last year. He kept the K rate close to where it was during that great 2019 season. There are little things in the profile that you can talk yourself into. I'll play the the devil's advocate side and, and make a Lane Thomas argument. I think with Lane Thomas, you have a guy that's controlled the strike zone well in his brief time in the big leagues, 12.9% walk rate in just over 300 and 300 well it is exactly 348 plate appearances is going to say over 350 plate appearances but no that's less than 350 plate appearances a 7.3 percent barrel rate limited action last year you know good average exit velocity numbers so it's it's a pretty good quality of contact from lane thomas and he can run a little bit so there's a few ways for him to make value you get a guy that walks that has a little bit of pop that can run that seems like a threat, at least to that leadoff spot for Robles. So I'm I'm looking at Thomas as probably the biggest threat. They could play in the lineup together. Thomas mm-hmm. can play left, Robles can play center. So there's no reason why those two guys can't be in the lineup together. I guess the, the thing that I've noticed with Thomas, and I'm curious how much this matters to you, is that in the brief time that he's been up at the big league level, a lot of the damage he has done has come against lefties. Against righties, he had a 67 WRC plus last season. He's amazing against lefties. It's such a limited amount of playing time, though. I have a very difficult time saying that's definitely who Lane Thomas is, and we shouldn't be that excited about him with this opportunity to possibly be the starting left fielder. Yeah, I see that. That's I think that's a, an important thing to bring up. That's a, a path that he could possibly continue on, and and that could threaten his playing time. I see a wide range of, of possibilities here for Lane Thomas. Uh, I think it helps that there aren't really viable alternatives for the Nationals. So I think he gets a, a very, uh, you know, a very extended look uh, as a regular. And I'm not sure who would who would end that run, even if things didn't go particularly well for Thomas. So that's that's why yeah, it's a, I think it's an interesting question that you raise. I think it's it's tough to answer because you could also see a variety of ways that uh, Victor Robles' season could pan out. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe they both pan out and this team exceeds expectations because of the more established, consistent veterans they've got because of the addition to Cruz. But if they're going to exceed expectations, it's also because some things on the pitching side went better than we're expecting them to at this point here in mid-March. I wrote this as a fill-in-the-blank question on the rundown. There will be blank, viable, mixed-league starters in the Nationals rotation. And by viable, it can be people we use as streamers. It's it's like regular streamers, not just once a year on the road. It's September. They're facing a watered-down Marlins lineup kind of streamers. But someone that you're reasonably excited to roster on more than a part-time basis, I guess, would be the, the cutoff here. So... Steven Strasburg throwing. Josiah Gray acquired last summer in that deal that also brought Ruiz over from the Dodgers. Patrick Corbin coming off a bad year. Eric Fetty, Anibal Sanchez, Aaron Sanchez, Paolo Espino. It's a cast of characters for sure. What's the number, though? How many viable mixed league starters are there in that group? It really, I know this is a bit of a cop-out, but it depends in part on opportunity because I think... I could see Fetty as being a viable streamer. I could maybe even see Anibal Sanchez as being a viable streamer. It's It's been three years since he was good, but may, you know, maybe he returns to something close to that form. Uh, Josiah Gray, maybe he's going to be much better than he looked last year, but I'm, I'm not expecting it. I'm not drafting him as if that's going to be the case. I know we're talking about streamers, so we're not necessarily talking about drafting Josiah Gray, but... I'm not counting on on any of these pitchers to be a reliable streamer. I see some possibilities here where there could be, you know, maybe as many as three pitchers that would would be reliable streamers, but none that I would, you know, bet anything on at this point. Uh, well, of course, I mean, you know, if we're talking about just pitchers that that are you know usable, I, I expect that Steven Strasburg will will have a bounce back season, and I'm actually very surprised at how late he's going. Yeah, I mean, I know coming back from thoracic outlet surgeries, it, it's not a great track record uh, league-wide making it back and, and getting back to pre-surgery levels. But I think you can take a free kick at the can with Strasburg, see how he looks. He's going outside the top 300 overall. And if it doesn't work out, you just cut him. You, you, don't, you don't have to hold on to him all season. It's not like he's going in the 10th round and you're going to feel like you have to get consistent value out of him it's interesting though when you look at this team with the ATC projections they don't have any pitchers none not even in the bullpen projected for an ERA under four <laughs> it's actually very hard to do <laughs> yeah and yet uh you look at you know where are the exceptions like I say maybe if if uh you know Strasburg can come back from thoracic outlet that uh he'll he'll be the exception to that rule. It's worth a shot, but there's nobody else I really feel too confident in saying that for. Yeah, including the bullpen. Maybe Tanner Rainey can cut back on walks and and be that guy, but hard to say. It's just, I guess, Strasburg is the only one I've really even thought about taking a chance on. I haven't even been throwing darts in this bullpen. It is a group of pitchers that I have very little interest in collectively. I think it could be a long season in D.C., Let's close it out with the Marlins, and we'll go with the Goldilocks format question. The projections for Jazz Chisholm Jr. are too light, too heavy, or just right? I think they're way, way too heavy. Uh, I'm putting much more stock in May through September for Chisholm than April, and that April, that amazing April performance really uh, did a lot of heavy lifting for the overall stat line. So I 
you know, the, the batting average maybe is a little bit low. Maybe there's the potential for him to, to hit around 250 or so. But otherwise, I I see him as maybe hitting a, a dozen home runs. I think, again, if you're waiting the latter part of the season, I think that um, 20 steals to me looks like a long shot. And it's it's a you know a Marlins team where, while I think that overall a lot of us maybe tend to underrate players on on bad teams and, and in terms of the the run producing possibilities, but uh, I'm I'm not necessarily looking for Chisholm to be a, a big help there either. I think he's a, a really difficult case, and the quality of the competition he saw when he was younger, not in the minors, but just growing up was a lot lower than what a lot of other prospects saw. And I wonder if that just gives him more, more buffer to still make adjustments and improve. There's things he sees at each minor league level and has seen in the big leagues that he's maybe seeing for the first time or has seen less of than a lot of other young players breaking into the big leagues. And that power speed combo, I, I think he gets unlimited green lights. I like that he's walked to the upper levels of the minor leagues. I think a lot of guys that run really well are not necessarily good at, at working counts. So I wonder how much his strikeout rate is the byproduct of maybe being too patient at times, being in situations where he ends up behind an account and then is vulnerable to stuff outside the zone. It still feels like a profile that you want to get excited about because if it goes right, we're talking about him maybe as a top 20 overall player going the next season. I know there have been plenty of examples where this type of swing and miss leads to more of a disappointing outcome like you're describing. So it's a totally like high-variance situation. Um, I think the projections are about right, actually. I think I think 2020 is very reasonable. I would probably take the over on average. I think the OBP will be a tick higher than 306 as a result. I think the 422 slugging percentage in part because of the ballpark is probably the most right part of the current jazz slash line. But uh, it looks like you are totally out, and I am cautiously <laughs> in, depending on what else I've done when we get to that point where jazz is going in drafts right now. Yeah, and part part of the reason why I'm out is the where he's being taken. Uh, which I just think you, you know the fact that he's he's going ahead of of Corey Seager, Bobby Witt Jr., Carlos Correa. Uh, you know, obviously Bobby Witt, we don't even know how much he'll play, but you know, Correa, we, we know what we're going to get from Carlos Correa once he, he finds a landing spot. Uh, you know, same goes for, for a lot of other shortstops going right around there. So yeah, I guess I'm just a lot more pessimistic than, than, uh, most other people, but I, I do want to make a, a, a point about, you were talking about the strikeout rate and how maybe that that undergirds a, a profile that's not as impressive. The one thing that does make me hopeful for Jazz Chisholm is that he actually brought that strikeout rate down substantially in the second half when he was struggling in just about every other aspect of, of his offensive game. Uh, striking out almost 32% of the time in the first half, bringing that down to under 25% in the second half. So that's why I think that maybe a, a 250 batting average is is a legit possibility for him, but I just don't know how much power is, is really there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair short-term question. I mean, I think the raw power, at least based on the scouting grades too, points to 60 grade raw power. It's a question of how quickly can he unlock it? I think that's, that's where we're going to be pleasantly surprised or in the case, people that really like jazz, like vindicated, I guess, uh, if it comes through and, 
if it takes a little longer, then the the pessimists will be happy that they passed at the price because that's the problem. He's not cheap, and shortstop is loaded, and it's it's the same argument I have against Bobby Witt Jr. in redraft leagues right now. It's like, well, why are you passing on guys that have much better floors? Mostly, it's for speed but it's also for the possible star level ceiling because that is in the range of outcomes. So you are kind of out on him right now. So I'm curious, who is the non-Jazz Marlins player that you like most at their ADP? I really like Avisail Garcia. Uh, and while I, yeah, I'm going to kind of play both sides of the argument here because while well, I said that part of the lack of relative lack of appeal for Jazz Chisholm Jr. is that maybe his uh, run production isn't going to to be as, as helpful as the the ADP would suggest that it would be that Garcia's certainly going to be hitting somewhere in the middle of that Marlins lineup. Uh, we know that the power and yeah, the power will be somewhat reduced playing home games at Marlins park, but that's already been baked into the projections. And I think more than baked into the ADP. So I, I like the combination there for Garcia, um, you know, decent batting average, uh, a little bit of uh, stolen base appeal and, um, still you know talking about 2025 home run power in a in a tough park i mean i think it's interesting because the marlins are at the bottom of the league last year with the pirates in terms of runs scored and when i think of what a a good player can do on a bad team right now i think of brian reynolds and last year 302 395 22 i don't expect avi garcia to have a slash line like that but the numbers that jump off the page to me when i look at reynolds are 93 runs and 90 rbis in that lineup, that was a bad Pittsburgh lineup. So even even in a really bad overall environment, a player that's that good can do a surprising amount of, of damage production-wise. So I, I would be looking at Garcia and thinking of the full season of health from him, at least 80-80 in those two categories with that power, with a little bit of speed, and probably with more of like a 270-280 sort of average. I do think he's an underrated player uh, even after a good season a year ago in Milwaukee. I think for me, the the non-Jazz Marlin, I mean, I actually do, like I said, I like Jazz in certain instances if I'm chasing speed and you know, I just need to to get that speed where he goes as opposed to waiting even later and taking more flaws to get it. I'm on board. I think the Marlin that I like most at their ADP right now is probably probably Jesus Sanchez. It's only close because I think people have forgotten about Brian Anderson, kind of a Mm -hmm. boring accumulator, and he's free right now. But Jesus Sanchez should be at least a big side platoon guy, dominated at AAA last year, brought the K rate down at that level. The power translated to the big leagues as well. I mean, it's well over a 30 home run pace if you stretch out what he was doing with Miami over a full season. Just one of those guys that I think, like Avi, will play a ton, be high in the order, and he can do some pretty good things with that playing time as long as it falls into place the way that I'm expecting. Last question for you for today, Al. Is the Marlins 2022 leader in saves already on the roster? And if so, who is it going to be? Well, I do think that that, that player's on the roster just because I don't see the Marlins as a team that, that's going to contend and therefore make a move midseason to add somebody uh, that's going to be an impact arm in the bullpen. That, so the question is, which one? And I think it does come down to Dylan Floro and, and uh, Anthony Bender. I'll give the edge here to Floro. Um just because he, he did get more opportunities last year. 
he doesn't fit the the profile that we necessarily like in fantasy because he's never been a strikeout pitcher, but he has always and very consistently been really great at inducing soft contact. So between that and the park that he pitches in at home, I think he could still put up some really nice numbers. I think it's just all a question of does he get the first crack at it? So this is one to watch in spring training because I think Bender would be a perfectly fine closer who could uh, not get into too much trouble in that role and have some job security. So it's, it's one to watch, but it's really more of a gut call than anything. But I, I think uh, Floro probably uh, starts out with the job and doesn't do anything to lose it other, maybe, other than maybe get traded. Yeah, I guess that's always the concern. If they don't push more chips in for this year, they could end up being a team that's moving players away at the deadline. I'm hoping it's Bender. I had to throw my extra money at the end of the NL labor draft a few weeks ago in his direction. So it looks like I really like him. I think he's interesting. I think he could be their closer, but I don't think there's a ton that separates him from Floro. I think it is that added K potential really that makes me more excited about Bender by comparison. But if Floro pitches well, they would have no incentive to take him out of the role. And sometimes it just comes down to who gets the, the job first. And I think Don Mattingly did speak to the media today and he answered a lot of questions. I see a ton of tweets in my timeline. None of them are about the bullpen situation. So we are left to wonder at least for another day. Uh, both are cheap, though, so you can throw a late dart. If you're wrong, cut them loose, move on, speculate in another bullpen accordingly. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Before we go, I should let you know our draft kit is up. You can check it out at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. That link will get you a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months. You can find Al on Twitter at Al Melchior. I am at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you Friday with Under the Radar.